Uh, I want to try this, see how it works. It's password protected, okay? So if you want access to uh, put your information on there where other church members can get to it and be able to call you or email you or whatever, um, you can put as little or as much information on there as you want, but it is password protected. So if you want to connect to it, um, first of all, you have to go to avchapel.com forward slash directory. There's no link on the front page. There's none of that. It's all secretive. It's all within here. Super secret information. Um, but um, if you would like to request a password for access to this, uh, email at avchapel.com and we'll get you set up. And then you'll be able to go in there and put your information in there or don't. Whatever. It's up to you. You can put as little or as much as you want, or you don't have to put anything. Um, but I also don't want to hear you complaining when you're like, nobody ever calls and checks on me, you know? So uh, it's just another way to be connected as the body of Christ. So that said, um, I think that's all other than we do have a group that's headed to, um, and they started yesterday. So I don't know if they're there yet, but they're headed to Zambia to invest in uh, the pastors there, to build chicken coops for the, for the production of eggs for the kids, and, and they're doing a lot of other service projects. They're feet on the ground to meet with some of these kids and these pastors that are supporting uh, Bethlehem Christian Academy there in Zambia. So um, be praying for them as they travel. They've got a 15-hour bus ride from the south to the north to go to the north campus. Um, 15 hours is a long time to do anything, uh, but you get on a bus in Africa, uh, you're going to see some country. So uh, let's pray for them. Uh, thank you, Father, for the, the distance that you traveled that is far beyond 15-hour bus ride to come and be with us, to show us that you care, to die for us, um, to show that you wanted a relationship with us and you still reside within us. Lord, I pray that these folks that have taken this step of faith and spent a great amount of money to travel to Zambia would be blessed. But I pray even more so that the, those that they're going to encourage and bless practically and feed meals to and have these community events that we supported back by having a barbecue here, that money and the proceeds are going to, to support a community outreach where they're going to feed hungry bellies and introduce them to this ministry, but also tell them about Jesus. I pray that it would be more than just effective. I pray that it would be successful in your eyes, that it's worth it to you if only one person is saved. And we pray for many more to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and to be set free and to be able to live for you and to be witnesses there in Zambia and beyond. So Father, thank you for our little piece in this puzzle. I pray, my prayer as a pastor is that uh, maybe next year that we could have boots on the ground, people to go and meet uh, Emmanuel, the little boy that we support, but also to see the faces and to see the difference that we're getting to make in their community and in their family life, and also just to go and show them that it's more than just money we're sending. We're sending pieces of ourselves to be there and to show them that they're loved. So Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for overflowing us with love so that we can go and show it to others. And thank you for the opportunities that we have to make a global impact. And uh, for some of us, the only time we'll ever see the fruit from that is when we see you face to face and we see those kids, uh, those adults by that time in eternity. 
So, Father, we look forward to that time where we'll see the fruition of all that you have accomplished through us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And what's really cool is we actually got to uh, thank, thankful for uh, John Inman gave us one of those uh, tiger's hats. And we sent an Arcadia Valley tiger's hat to Emmanuel, the little boy that we support. And we sent a little note and a picture. And so uh, we got to be a part of going in that way. So, so that said, uh, turn in your Bibles with me to First Peter. And uh, this week we're going to talk uh, yet again, everybody's favorite topic, we're going to talk about suffering. And if that's not your favorite, I'm sorry, next week we won't be on suffering. We're going to move forward. It's been two weeks in a row. Um, but the reality is uh, a lot of life, this side of heaven, exists and has suffering involved. And uh, though we don't like to talk about it, we don't celebrate it, um, I think it's something that we're all, in different degrees, uh, we can all relate to, suffering in some form or fashion. And so um, in First Peter, so far, to give a quick recap, um, I want to point out that one of the big themes in First Peter is not only our living hope in Christ, but by God's grace, living as if that hope is true. And so this letter, First Peter, is written by the Apostle Peter, and it's written to what he says in chapter 1, God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the world. And so he makes this big emphasis that for the Christian, if you're not comfortable in this world, that should be the case. You shouldn't be comfortable here because the reality is, for the believer, we're living in a war zone compared to what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is going to be where there is true, lasting peace kept by God. And so by God's grace, we have a living hope in Jesus that we will obtain when all is finished, when everything that Christ came to accomplish in his first coming and then in his second coming, he will accomplish lasting peace and will have a living hope. He promised it, but that promise is obtained by faith in Jesus, the one who procured it. So the reality is, he says in chapter 1 and 2, that trials, and he says you're going to experience trials, it's not an if, but it's a when. People always told me when I rode my motorcycle all the time, and I found it to be true, that it's not if you wreck, it's when you wreck. Praise God, it was a small wreck and not a big wreck. I laid it over instead of flipping it over and doing something crazy. But in the Christian life, trials are not just uh, if they happen, you need to get insurance for us. It's, the reality is it's, it's when they happen. Sometimes they'll come in the form of trials. Sometimes they'll come in the form of persecution. Sometimes they'll come in the form of hatred towards you. Uh, sometimes they'll just come because we live in a fallen world. Uh, gravity will take its toll. But the reality is trials will show, like a furnace shows of, of precious metals, trials will show if your faith is genuine. If you take gold or silver and you put it in a furnace and you turn up the heat to a certain temperature, it will show whether or not that gold or that silver is pure. So for us as believers, how do we know if we're in the faith or not? We have to allow God to introduce or at the very least allow trials in our life that turn up the temperature and prove whether our faith is genuine or whether it is uh, something that's lacking or not faith at all. Um, 
But he points out in chapter 1 through 2 that by God's grace, not only are we supposed to be saved by his grace and, and, and have hope in this, but we are also to walk in this hope. It's one thing to say, I have hope in Christ alone. It's another thing to walk in that truth and actually live it out practically. And I think, unfortunately, being in the Bible Belt, many times we spend all of our church services on proclaiming the gospel over and over again. And there's nothing wrong with that. That needs to happen. There are people that darken the doors of a church that are not saved, and they think they are. So we need to communicate clearly. And one of the things that I saw Tuesday night visiting camp was a a proclamation of the bad news that we're all fallen short of the glory of God, that we have a negative balance. We're not just bankrupt, but we've actually overdrawn our account because of sin and the wages of sin is death. And if you've ever overdrawn in your bank account, what do they do when you overdraw? They apply a overdraw, overdraft fee. So I didn't have any money to start with. I overdrew, maybe it's a quarter is what he said. And at Bank of America, apparently it's a $35 fee on top of that. So that's what sin does. I was bankrupt to start with. I started drafting checks Those checks bounced because they were sinful, and the reality is they apply an overdraft fee. So that's the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. So he not only imputes his righteousness, right standing with God, but he imputes to our account uh, his riches. He never overdraws. His grace is abounding. It's overflowing. When he goes to fill up our cup, it overflows with his righteousness. He's always got more. But my point is, we also need to work on teaching and edifying one another, building one another up so we can walk. We need grace to walk daily in obedience and submission to the Father. So by God's grace, we must walk in this hope soberly with conduct, he says, that reflects actually actual hope in what we've been promised and showing by our actions that we believe in the salvation that we've been given. And so our lives should look different. And, and I just have notes here. I'm kind of giving you the cleft notes version to get back up to chapter four. He says, by God's grace, we must submit our conduct to God in these areas. And we talked about these weeks ago in our relationship to governing authorities We need to be in submission to the Father. And he has a way that he wants us to interact as citizens of heaven with our government. Uh, He wants us to submit to himself uh, in our relationships to those who have specific leadership over us. In your Bibles, it'll probably say to submission to masters. Maybe some of you aren't slaves. So how does that relate to us, right? Uh, Most of us are free. We can do whatever we want. So who's our master? I would submit to you that it's your boss. I would submit to you that it's your teacher. I would submit to you that it's your parents. We all have somebody that we're to be in submission to as we are in submission to the Lord. Uh, We are to be in submission by God's grace in our relationship with our spouse. We're to be in submission to God uh, by his grace in our relationships with fellow believers. Um in the church, not just during church, but also outside of the church. Uh, Psalm chapter 133 actually says this, how beautiful it is 
when, when there's uh, unity in the body of Christ, that it's like oil dripping down the beard of Aaron, which is the weirdest verse ever, unless you understand that the oil that went over the head of the priest was actually a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out lavishly over him, anointing him for the service of God. And so, praise the Lord, we don't pour buckets of oil on each other. That'd be hard to get out with soap. But the reality is, God wants to, in the same way, pour out His Holy Spirit over believers. And one of the ways that He does that, His blessing is attached to unity in the body of Christ. doesn't mean uniformity, where we just all have the exact same thoughts. But in the diversity and the gifts and the personalities in the body of Christ, he anoints the fellowship that we have when we get together, even though we're not all the same. There's this blessing attached to that. There's this dripping of the Holy Spirit just poured out over fellowship in the body of Christ. And so in chapter three, by God's grace, we are to, he says, suffer well. And he gives uh, our example of suffering in Jesus Christ who I believe suffered more than any man ever did, especially because his suffering wasn't because he had done anything wrong. I don't know about you guys, but when I get in trouble for something I've done wrong and I bear the consequences for that, I don't like it, but I get it. But have you ever had to suffer the consequences of doing something that you didn't do? I would say that many times it doesn't really happen to us, but he says that we are to suffer in a way, even when we suffer for doing righteous deeds in the eyes of God, but to the world it looks like uh, unrighteousness, we're to suffer in a way that brings praise and glory to God, not to us. And that's hard because many times people will come along behind you after you've done the right thing for the right reasons in the fear of God, and they'll go, man, you're awesome. And it's very easy to go, yeah, I am. (laughs) I like praise. I just like people to like me. I like pats on the back. But the problem is, is that the glory needs to go to God because ultimately, if we take the glory to ourselves, we might get puffed up in pride. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't congratulate one another. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pat one another on the back and go, man, that was so awesome. And give opportunity for praising one another because here's something we don't do well in the Midwest just my opinion. We don't celebrate each other enough. We don't celebrate each other enough. We don't watch each other's lives enough and go, you did really good at that. And and I think we could do more at that because when we celebrate one another, it builds us up. And, And in the right heart, what happens is we're encouraged enough to keep trying because most of us are doing the right thing when nobody's watching, and when somebody notices, it's refreshing when we care about the person that comes along and says, you know what, that was a good job. I know that was probably hard for you to do. And, and if we can do that, guess what happens when you encourage people for doing the right thing? It's easier to do it the next time. It doesn't make it easy, but it makes it easier to do it the next time. And so we can be the, the mouthpiece, speaking each other's encouragement into each other's life. But then... He says we are to, in verse 7 through 11, have Christ-like attitudes in the midst of our suffering. Now, it's one thing to suffer for doing right. It's one thing to take it and just keep going and keep dragging that that stone behind us. But it's a whole other thing to have Jesus' attitude while we suffer for doing the right thing. 
And so he says we are to suffer for doing the right thing with a Christ-like attitude, but he doesn't say to do it as a lone ranger. He says, do this together. Look in verse 7 with me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, look at this, above even praying and being sober and vigilant over one another and praying for each other, he says, have a fervent love for one another. What does fervent love look like? I'd say consistency, but I would also say it almost looks like too much. It almost looks like, whoa, easy, you know? It it almost looks like, hey, I I know that I did good, or I know that I'm going through a hard time, but I'm not really a hugger, you know? But to have fervent love for one another. Fervent love doesn't always look like hugs either. Sometimes it looks like calling somebody and encouraging them when you know they're going through a rough time, and it's late at night, and you know they're struggling, they're probably not sleeping. God lays you somebody on your heart, call them, text them. That's one of the reasons I'm, I'm pushing this uh, directory thing. Not so much because I want you guys creeping on each other and being busybodies, but because we should, as believers, be involved in each other's life to a certain extent because we do need uh, an encouragement once in a while. He says, have fervent love for one another. For look at this, love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover. Love always covers. Jesus' love covers our sins. It's the glory of man to forgive a trespass, to cover it over. Not to act like it didn't happen, but to show grace. But it's also very helpful to show love to one another because when we do, here's the reality. A lot of people aren't willing to show love to other brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ because they've been burned when they've allowed themselves to be vulnerable and get close and build relationships in the church. And I get that. As a pastor, I've seen more of it than you ever will. And maybe not. Maybe you've seen it more than I have. But the reality is, love makes a person vulnerable because you start sharing life, you start sharing stories, and then there's always the possibility that somebody's going to use that information against you. So here's the question. Does that mean that we're no longer called to love? Or does that mean that love makes itself vulnerable? Just as Jesus came down, put himself in a human body, and made himself killable, right? He, he gave himself a body that was subject to death so that he could come down and show us that he loved us. And what do we do? We killed him brutally. But love covers a multitude of sins. So does that mean that it's worth it in the long run? In, in this, for the sake of Christ, I would say yes. He says, um, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Picture it like this. In the lampstand in the temple, there was this lampstand that was actually had seven, I think, candles. And those candles all drew from the same source of oil. And think, you ever have those kerosene lanterns? Or those, uh, is it kerosene? where you pour it in the bottom, it's got a little wick that hangs in there, and then it burns, and then it draws more oil in, and then it keeps burning as long as you have it on. Well, the candle stand was like that. It had one source, but it had seven lights coming from it. 
And all of those lights would draw the olive oil out of the bottom, and they would burn brightly. Now picture it like this. The body of Christ is like that candle stand. Each one of us has a different kind of wick, and we're all drawing from the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, that olive oil was always a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so as that oil is wicked up through us and we burn bright for the Lord, we are burned, but we're not consumed like that burning bush in the wilderness when Moses was spoken to by God through that burning bush. And so we are to burn bright. And one of the ways that we do that is that God has given each one of us gift and gifts. Some of us have more gifts than others, but God gives them to whoever so he wills. And as he does that, look at this. Those gifts are meant not for ourselves, but for others. He says, as each one's received a gift from God, he says, minister, which is just a a churchy word for serve. He says, serve it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So there's this manifold through which God is pouring his Holy Spirit, and that manifold is you. And as that Holy Spirit is being poured through you and you've been given gifts, they're actually not for you. They're for other people to be blessed by. I don't know about you guys, but when God gives me something, a lot of the time my first inclination is to go, man, this is going to be great. You know, you remember Christmas morning, your favorite gift, or maybe it was your first car. You get that car and you're like, man, this thing's awesome. Uh, My first car was a 1986 SS Monte Carlo. It was the car I wanted. My dad took me to a car show at DeCoin, Illinois. I would not recommend you take your children to a car show in DeCoin, Illinois. I saw and got educated. I saw more skin. It was bad. We'll just leave it at that. But that said, that was where I kind of fell in love with the 1986 or pretty much like 80 four through probably, you know, around the Grand National, the Buick Grand Nationals, 84. Um, a lot of you guys that don't, don't care about cars, I'm losing you. But the point is, it was a really cool car. And uh, it had that square body, and I started looking. And in those days, you didn't have Craigslist. You didn't have Facebook. You definitely didn't have Facebook Marketplace. But you did have OnlineTrader.com. And I started Googling. I used Metacrawler. You younger ones have no idea what I'm talking about. And I, there was no Google. Believe it or not, there was a time before Google. And I searched for SS Monte Carlos. And I found several. And we drove to Dexter. We drove to, and we finally found one in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And I get this car. We bring it home. I'm 14, by the way. My dad drives me down there. We take a buddy of his. We drive it back. The first car to a gearhead family is like it. I've arrived. I got a C-A-R. And I worked hard for it. And so I paid cash. We brought it back. It made it all the way home. Praise the Lord for that. And then we get it in the garage. We start buffing. We start cleaning. We start vacuuming. We start changing the oil. We go through it. We get super special Heartbeat of America uh, personalized plate covers. Like I've got a sign in my garage still that says Monte Carlo parking only. Like I was that kid. Um, I lived down a mile gravel road. I had one of those California car dusters, and I'm just like dusting it every day. I'm, I'm waxing the thing. I'm protecting it. This, I, I didn't have candles burning, but I may as well have. <laughs> go in there every morning and go, there's my car. 
So then I get a little older and my brother wants to ride school with me. And I start treating my car better than human beings. That's kind of how we go, right? We get given something and every precious gift, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. The reality is, whether you're a Christian or not, every good gift comes from Him. And you can choose to give thanks to Him or you can choose to go, man, I'm awesome, look what I bought. But the reality was, because it was mine, other people were going to touch it, and it's going to get dirty. And then they start messing it up, and then i got to dust it more, and I'm despising people. And our gifts can be like that. I've got this gift, and I'm going to use it for me. I'm going to hold it for me. But the reality is, every gift that God gives you, and He gives us spiritual gifts to minister to each other. And I tell you what, I really started enjoying my stuff more when I realized God gave it to me for others. Now, here's the risk. I could loan that stuff to others and it come back in bad shape. But you have to give without expecting in return. That's what the Bible teaches us. You loan out money, it says in the Old Testament, don't expect it to come back. Be okay with losing it. Don't loan out any more than you can be okay with losing. You know, don't charge interest. That's what he said. We can do that for one another. To those who have much, we can supply the need of others. To those who have little, we get the gift of taking. And, and if we can, paying back. You know, letting our yes be yes. If we've agreed to pay somebody back. Um, but the idea is, is we can use that for one another. And I didn't plan on spending that much time on it. Just had one of those blasts from the past and I missed that car. Actually, I don't. It had T-tops, and every time you made a hard left in a rain, it's right on your leg. It's like, this is the worst car ever. This is the worst idol ever. It drips on me. There ain't no Holy Spirit oil either. So that being said, he goes on to say, uh, being good stewards, taking what God's given to you and being a good steward of it, uh, investing it in others, and you'll enjoy it more. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as of the oracles of God. What that means is, in the New Living Translation, it says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as if God himself is speaking through you. Use your tongues to say what God would have to say to that person. You might say, I don't know what God would say to that person. I would get to know the scriptures and get to know what God has said to people and say those words. His word never returns void. He says, If anyone serves or ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. If if God's called you to serve and you don't like doing it, stop doing it because you're, you're causing people to blaspheme. But if God's called you to serve, ask him to give you the strength to do it his way. And look at this, so that, he says, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is not glorified if you serve out of a have to. God is not glorified if you serve and it causes people to go, man, he's bitter or she's bitter or man, they really don't want to do it. God's glorified when we do it to please him so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong already the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God deserves to be glorified. God deserves to be having dominion and his dominion. Jesus kept saying over and over again, in the kingdom of God, this or that. And when John the Baptist came along preaching, what did he say? 
The kingdom of God is coming and it's here. So what does that mean? What is dominion? That means lordship. That means his dominion over which he has authority. It doesn't start with land boundaries. It starts in the human heart. And when Jesus takes over the land, when he conquers his enemies and comes into us and becomes the Lord over us as his land, his kingdom come, his will be done, starts with you and I. His dominion, his authority, his leadership. And so that begins with us being subject to him as our king. I heard somebody say something this week. I was at VBS and I was listening to their new pastor, Ryan. He shared about uh, something that maybe you've never thought of before. Jesus comes into your life and he says, I want to be your king. I want to be your Lord. What do you think of when you hear the word Lord? King or master or authority. Now think about that from an American perspective. What do we think about kings? We think they're all bad. You ain't going to tell me what to do. I'm American. You know, and here's the hard part about that. The gospel pushes back against that theory. Now, worldly kings, I get it. Men are evil. We take power and we use it for ourselves. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't remember who said that, but it wasn't me. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Anybody left unchecked. But the reality is, Jesus, as the authoritarian, as the the King of kings and the Lord of lords that Scripture proclaims him to be, when we lay down our lives and say, Lord, I want to die to myself. He said, if anybody would follow me, he must first deny himself. And as Americans, we are horrible at this because we are all about treat yourself. But God says, through Jesus, deny yourself, pick up your death instrument, pick up your um, electric chair, pick up your, your needle full of poison, your death sentence. That was what the cross was. We hang it, it's beautiful on our necks, but the reality is it's a, an electric chair. If somebody were wearing a necklace that had an electric chair, we'd be kind of creeped out. Now, there are some that really like to wear all black and they're into that stuff. But uh, for me, I think sometimes we forget the significance of the cross. The cross was a death instrument because Jesus denied himself and picked up literally his cross to the point he couldn't carry it anymore and allowed human beings to nail him to it and jam thorns on his head. He laid down his life so that you and I could live. And in the same way, we've been given the opportunity to lay down our lives so that he can live through us. Not because we have to, but out of gratitude for his sacrifice. And so the way that we can do that is by subjecting ourselves to his will. Now, he says, Beloved, verse 12, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's suffering. When you and I suffer as believers, we get to partake in the same suffering that he had, not for our redemption, not for our salvation, but we partake in sufferings and we can now identify with him in a special way. If you've ever suffered or or been in the trenches with somebody and gone through something, it deepens your relationship with them. It just does. 
If you've gotten up at 6.30 in the morning and done the ropes course, like there's a fellowship in that. For Drew, who's not with us this week, who's in the Marines, he's got guys that he's served with, and they've done PT together, and they've been in foreign countries together, and they've sweat buckets of sweat, wearing all their gear, basically out there serving our country. They have a deeper relationship. As believers, we get the blessing. And it's going to sound weird. We get the blessing to suffer for the name of Christ, and it's meant to not only refine our faith and prove whether it's true or not, but it also deepens our relationship with Jesus. How many of you guys have at some point or another been in that spot where you're like, Lord, I want to know you deeper. I want to know you closer. I want to know more about your love for me. I want to know more about your love for others, but we're not willing to experience suffering. And so we're kind of held back. And so he says there, rejoice in this suffering to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Now, I looked up this word and it kind of unlocked this passage for me last night. What does it mean to be reproached? Jesus suffered the reproach of men. What does it mean to be reproached? Well, I looked it up because Google does exist now little throwback for you, but Google says reproach actually is when someone expresses disapproval or disappointment in you. Now, he said in chapter 3 that in your past life, in regard to these, they, those around you in verse 4 of chapter 4, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They reproach you because you've said, I'm no longer going to live in my sin and my lust and my evil desires. I'm going to submit my life to God and I'm going to do righteously. I'm going to live righteously. And the world sees that and they will reproach you. They will speak their disapproval. You're what's wrong with society. You're holding us back from becoming all that we could be in, our, in the utopia that they desire to see in this world that is not a utopia that's possible without the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so they will speak unwell of you. They will, they will disapprove of your righteousness and your holiness, number one, because it convicts them that they are in sin. And number two, it makes them feel condemned because our righteous behavior implies that we believe there's a standard outside of whatever man thinks is right in their own eyes. And so they disapprove. They are disappointed in you. There are many who were disappointed in me when I had finally said, you know what, I want to follow Jesus. My life's going to change. I'm going to stop talking about it. I'm going to start living it. And there were people that spoke to me and said, I don't know, man, I I think that that's kind of foolish. Why are you wasting your life that way? Don't you know you can have all this fun? And they only saw what I was giving up. They didn't see what I was gaining. And so here we are in chapter 4 and in verse 14, he says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you suffer reproach for the name of Christ, rejoice because it's a sign that you're actually going the right way. It's a sign that you're actually doing what God's called you to do, that the spirit of God has been given to you. You ever wanted proof that you are actually walking in the faith? 
One of the proofs is that you suffer the same reproach that Jesus did for doing righteously. He says, on their part, he is blasphemed. When they see your good works, they reject it and they say, wow, you must be following some kind of crazy cult. They did that for Jesus. When he healed people on the Sabbath, they said, of course he's casting out demons. He does it because he is subject to the prince of demons. And, and he said that that was blasphemy. They were blaspheming the works of the Holy Spirit. And, and they'll do that for you too. But he says, verse 15, excuse me, at the end of that verse, he says, but, but on your part, he is glorified. On their part, they blaspheme God, but in your part, he's glorified through your works. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody. Now, okay, a lot of us could probably say, well, I'm not a murderer. I've never killed anybody. And a lot of us could probably say, I I haven't stolen anything. But remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that murder starts in the heart. So if you've hated your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. So don't hate somebody and then suffer the consequences as a believer. If you, as a believer, hate somebody and you call yourself a Christian, stop it. This is behavior that's unbecoming of a believer. Reckon yourself dead to that sin and have Christ change your attitude. Lord, I'm sorry that these thoughts are here. Please change my mind because I know you love this man and I don't, or this person, and I can't take it, but I know that you can change my heart. But he says also, don't suffer as an evildoer or as a busybody. What's a busybody? Somebody that's a nosy Nancy. Somebody that's always getting involved in other people's stuff. Now, there is a level that we need to be involved in each other's lives, but not as busybodies, not as gossips, not as speaking of others when you would never say that around them. We need to be subject to Christ in that way. He says, don't let anybody suffer in these ways as a believer because these are ways as a believer we shouldn't even be walking in. But then he says in verse 16, yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, implying that the previous verse says that you're suffering as a non-Christian. These are behaviors that only non-believers should have. But he says, yet, if any of you suffers as a Christian, then let him not be ashamed. Don't hide. Let your light so shine before men that so that when they see your good works, they may glorify our God who is in heaven. But let him glory, glorify God in this matter. Let him suffer in a way that brings glory to God. There's a distinction made here. Verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, it's interesting he says this because he doesn't say what will be the end of those who do not believe the gospel of God. I was talking to somebody this week, and he, he made the distinction. He said, isn't it interesting that in James chapter 3, James writes that, okay, it's good that you believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe. But God's not called us to be believers. Now, you might have a check and go, wait a minute. I, I believe in Jesus. That's my identity. He's not called us to be believers. Did you know that? Now, he has called us to believe, but he's called us to be disciples. 
and disciples are obedient to their master. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't obey? And, and I think that we need to make sure that we are actually being obedient to the gospel, not just believing it. The gospel can be true, and you can pay lip service to it, but obedience is what Christ has called us to. If G- and you say, well, what does that really matter? If Jesus wasn't obedient to the point of death, we wouldn't have salvation. His simple obedience to the will of the Father meant life, and it means life eternally for you and I. Simple obedience in your life means life or death. Obedience to the gospel. Obedience to his lordship. Are you? Are you being obedient? So there's this contrast. But judgment, he says here, begins at the house of God. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? That's what the world quotes all the time. Even if they don't know the Bible, they quote that verse. Don't judge me, brother. Jesus said not to judge. And yet, what he wrote there was, if we would judge ourselves, then we would be able to help others. Inspect the fruit in our lives. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, if we would judge ourselves then we wouldn't be judged. We need to examine ourselves regularly. And he says the same thing. Paul writes the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31 and 32. That we, if we would judge ourselves, then guess what? We won't be judged. We'll find ourselves to, see, to be in obedience to the, to the gospel. Now, he says there in verse 18, If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? If our lives are scarcely or saved by the skin of our teeth, what about those who follow our example? What what about those who have not yet been obedient to the gospel? But he says here, Therefore, let those who suffer, verse 19, according to the will of God, that is, commit their souls to him in doing good, as to a faithful creator. Actions imply belief. Our obedience to what Christ has called us to will be evident whether it's there or not. So I have here for you a few things, and and I didn't get to get there today, but in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John pray for a lame man. He's been sitting at the gate for his whole life. He's never been able to walk. And when they pray for him, he's healed. And he jumps up, he starts running around, and what does he do? He praises God. He doesn't praise John, he doesn't praise Peter. And uh, what happens is that the religious leaders at the time, uh, they reproach him, and they reproach Peter and John, and they actually have him arrested. And in Acts chapter 5, um, what happens excuse me, Acts chapter 4, they're arrested. And it says there in chapter 4, as they spoke to the people, basically telling them what way this man was healed, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in the name of Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard what Peter and James were saying about the man being healed, they they heard the word, and they believed what happened. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So the day of Pentecost, 3,000 saved, right? 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But on this day, when this man is healed in the front of the temple, 5,000 are saved. So it's almost multiplying even more. Verse 5 says, It came to pass that the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, who is writing the book that we're reading about, gives a testimony. And he's going to suffer for these words, but he has boldness. And he says, Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He's not just speaking to anybody. He's speaking to the upper echelon of status quo. He says to them, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all. They didn't, they're already arrested, by the way. So at this point, rather than going, you know, let's dial back to Jesus talk because that's really the only thing. He's already been healed. What do we need to be going and, and rustling feathers for? Why don't we just go, well, you know, God healed him and not mention Jesus. But he doesn't do that because he wants to be, God to be glorified. He wants Jesus to be made famous. Now, for some, they're going to blaspheme Jesus. And others are going to believe and follow Jesus. That's the risk that we take. But Paul's, or Peter speaks up here and he said, Let it be known to you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So he even, he even accuses them again. Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you made whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. He doesn't pull any punches, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And everything went well, and everybody was happy. (laughs) Right. Nope. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, which, by the way, made them look at Peter and John and go, psh. They disdained them because they didn't have a plaque on the wall. They disdained them because they were untrained in their eyes, untrained men. But were they untrained? Were they uneducated? Yes. In the eyes of the world, they had not been trained. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't go to some school that everybody accredited. They had been trained by Jesus, who was a nobody that was killed. But they'd been given the Holy Spirit And Jesus had been resurrected and commissioned them, sent them out as apostles. And so as they realized that they had been with Jesus, they did realize that they had been with Jesus. They were untrained. They were uneducated. They were from Galilee, which was basically like many people might think about Arcadia Valley. They're not anybody. They're not from a city. They're not from, they didn't go to XYZ college. They're just from Gal- They're just from Ironton. They're just from Pilot Knob. They don't even live in Pilot Knob. They're highway people. You know, they're, they're, they're nobody. In the eyes of the world, we are flyover territory. But may it be said about us, if nothing else, may people notice in you and I that they've been with Jesus. 
That's where our power comes from. You want to know what makes me feel called to, to do this on a Sunday morning? I just spend time with Jesus. Christ in us is the hope of glory for us and for the people we speak to. Nothing else, nothing more. We can't add anything to it. Somebody goes to seminary, as long as it makes them a better Christ follower, go for it. As long as it makes them a more clear communicator of the gospel, go for it. The reality is our only credential is that we've been with Jesus. And my question for you is, is that a staple in your life? Is that a staple in your life that people can see the difference? Or are you clinging to some other thing, your name, what church you go to, what people you hang out with? Uh, The reality is that none of that matters. None of that gives power. But what I think is interesting, and I shouldn't have turned from Acts chapter 4, I'm really trying to dial it in, but this is so good. Here's what happens. As a result of their suffering, they have a prayer meeting. They join in prayer. After having shown so much boldness and confidence in Jesus, they're, they're scared, <laughs> just like you and I would be. They've been thrown in jail. They've been let out by the grace of God, but they're still scared. In verse 23, it says, Being let go, they went to their own companions. They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage? The people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to us, your servants, that with all boldness that we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, look at this, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They suffered, they prayed, they were bold, And it says, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. I want to submit to you that even though persecution may increase in our land today, in this land of the free, for doing the right thing, for living righteously before God, when that happens, it will be for our good. I don't want it for my kids. I don't want it for me. But it will purify between those It will divide between those who are really in the faith and those who are pretenders and just trying to get a ticket to heaven. And the reality is the church exploded at this point because of suffering. They were unified. They worked together. They overlooked the minutia of little differences that don't matter that we argue about and we have sermons about and we divide over. And it says there in verse 29 of chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles answered and said to them later when they were arrested again, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then in verse 40 of chapter 5, um, <laughs> they were set free. And when they had called for the apostles, look at this, they, they were imprisoned. And in verse 40, they were set free by the religious leaders. And when they were set free, he called the apostles, 
They went ahead and beat them a little bit just for funsies to get them to shut up. And then they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Look at the response of the believers. The more you suffer for the sake of Christ, the more you realize that it means you're in the right team. Verse 41, they departed from the presence of the council and they rejoiced that they were counted, look at this, worthy to suffer shame for his name. And it says, verse 42, daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So Peter is writing about suffering because he's experienced it. And he says in verse 19, from experience, therefore, let those who suffer in the will of God, not for foolishness, but for obeying, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, actually said this. He said, I know whom I have trusted, and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him, my very life, until the day of Christ Jesus. So when God's done with you, your life's not going to keep going anyway. But until then, be emboldened, you're untouchable. In the will of God, you are untouchable. You are a billboard for his grace. You're someone who can give testimony of the reality of his resurrection and the power that he's given you in your life. And you can proclaim simply what he's shown you, that they would recognize in you, these people have been with Jesus, that person, that guy. And I say this to you, um, my neighbor texted me the other night. He's going through some suffering and pain, and he lived right across the street from us, and now he doesn't live close. And I was so blessed to hear this. He said, I miss when I could walk across the street, and I knew I could talk to you, and I knew you'd pray for me. It's that simple. We don't have to go to Africa. We don't have to go to the end of the earth. Live where you're called. Live as you're called, and let Jesus live through you. Father, um, I don't wish suffering upon any of us. I don't wish catastrophe or persecution even. But I also know that many times when we're comfortable, we're not as emboldened to speak about the hope that can't be taken from us. And so, Father, I pray for myself, and I pray for this group that you've assembled this morning. If we are to suffer if we are to speak the truth in love, if it's not going to go easy for us, we're asking, Holy Spirit, send your grace to cover us. Send your love to be lived through us. We cannot do it on our own, and we definitely can't have the mind of Christ on our own. So we're asking, the Lord, that you would give it to us, that you would give us hearts, maybe hearts that are weak, that can't do it, but hearts that are simply willing to obey the gospel of God. The love of Christ shown to us, Lord, help us to let Christ live through us in the lives of others around us. And may your name be magnified. May it be glorified. May it be seen in our lives and powerful and yet unnoticeable to the world's ways. Lord, make yourself famous one person at a time. And we promise to give you the glory because we'll know that it wasn't us. So Lord, give us the grace to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.